You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to the groupthink free zone here at the conservative conscience on Tuesday, April the 3rd. Yes, it is already April. And no, this is no April Fool's joke. We really do not have a country with borders left. And we're going to talk about that today. Our stolen sovereignty as always. But I hope you guys had a terrific Easter or Passover weekend. I took a little bit of time off yesterday, kind of took it easy. Um, you know, it's funny. I'm, th- I'm watching the snowfall, yes, in April on the East Coast. We're not talking about Minnesota or North Dakota. And there's actually some more uh, snow scheduled for Saturday or whatever, at least predicted in the forecast. And a friend of mine just reminded me that... On April 2nd, yesterday, was the 11th anniversary of Massachusetts v. EPA. Now, if you remember, that was the case where the Supreme Court said that states could get standing to sue the EPA into regulating the climate. Yes, a court can do anything. A court can have a science debate, a court can have a philosophical debate, a theological debate, and a, and, a, and a social debate. There's nothing a court cannot do. We're going to talk about that a lot today. But I was just thinking of the irony as we're watching snowfall in April. Um, you know, the fact that the courts declared global warming to be the law of the land. And by the way, the guy who wrote the opinion was none other than former Justice John Paul Stevens who's now infamous for his uh, you know, New York Times op-ed calling for the repeal of the Second Amendment, which is bizarre because, the, the truth be told, he also wrote the dissent in, in Heller or McDonald. I'm forgetting. I think it was McDonald v. Chicago. So he doesn't even believe the Second Amendment <laughs> exists without the you know, constitutional amendment process. So I don't even know what he means. But it's just funny that the courts have that power to deny reality as we're now living with the opposite reality here on the East Coast. But anyway, you know, we have a scenario here, as I've warned for now three years, that unless you do something about the courts, we literally have no sovereignty left. The courts are in the process of doing to immigration what they did to life and marriage in Roe v. Wade and, and Obergefell. So, you know, obviously, everyone's talking now about this caravan of roughly 1,500 illegal aliens that is coming, you know, it's winding its way through Mexico, now came from Honduras, and everyone's like, oh my gosh, are we going to have these people stampeding into our country and there's nothing we can do about it? Now, I think this, the, the truth be told, there's nothing unique about this other than Soros is kind of behind it and funding it, but this happens all the time. I'm glad we finally have some national attention focused on it, and I'm glad President Trump is outraged about it. Now, I will note that, you know, Trump has been on message the last 24, 48 hours about the broader immigration issue. The problem is, guess what? 
It's a day too late and a dollar too short. It, it, you know, he gave up all of his leverage. He signed every single budget bill. It's about four of them between fiscal year 2017, fiscal year 2018, the first two years of his presidency. He signed away all of his leverage without enacting any of his priorities. And now he gets all tough on immigration. But, gee, you know, there's not much you can do now. He says Congress needs to act. Now, maybe we'll talk about what I think he can do. But it's, it's a little bit tough when you give up all your leverage like that and you sign these bills. You don't use uh, your veto or at least threaten a veto to leverage some of these changes to, to asylum, to the UAC law. This is a big problem when you give that up. And you know what's also sad? People forget that you know if Trump felt he needed to cave on the budget bill would be one thing. And then fight on the debt ceiling. The problem is he rolled up the debt ceiling, basically an unconditional blank check, in the February budget bill. So it was a, it was a you know twofer. Now he now he has no must pass bill as a legislative vehicle to leverage some of his immigration priorities against the Congress. And obviously, since then the debt has surged. That's a whole other discussion. No one wants to talk about. Um, with interest payments rising, we're going to get crushed with debt payments. The debt has surged uh, just within two weeks, $100 billion in two weeks. You're not going to hear this anywhere else. No one's, t- no one's focused on that, but $100 billion in, in, in two weeks. I mean, just to give you a sense of, you know, if you would annualize that on an annual basis, that would be something like, Gosh, that that would be that would be close to two and a half trillion. Now it's not going to be two and a half trillion because a lot of it the debt was held back because of the debt ceiling, and now you know they're just uh, unwinding all those what they call extraordinary measure measures that the Treasury Department implements once you brush up against the debt ceiling. But still, it's pretty astounding that we just issued a hundred billion in new debt in just two weeks. And the thing is, it's not just that they raise the debt limit. So you could say, all right, well, if we get to it quickly enough, maybe come the end of the year, you know, maybe before the election, he'll have another bite at the apple. They lifted or suspended the debt ceiling law, not a dollar amount, but categorically until I believe in about 12 months from now, sometime next spring. And then between that and ex- extraordinary measures, it will probably take us well into next year, into next summer. So no leverage in sight on any of that stuff. But that's where we stand now. So I want to start off by, by talking about some recent court, case. I, court cases. I have a piece out today uh, detailing some of this. But basically, our country has become ground zero for drugs, for gangs from Mexico and, and El Salvador. And now we're becoming the world's dumping ground for abortions. Yep, we've heard district judges now are declaring this nation one big sanctuary, not for the lives of babies, but a sanctuary for abortion. So they're mixing together what they've already pretty much done into one ball of of insanity. The so-called right to an abortion, the right to immigrate, and now they mix them together. You have the right to immigrate as a teenage girl and come here 
where you can't have an elective abortion in your home country, and you could come here and demand access to an abortion. Now, this is not just an uh, abortion issue. What this is going to do is further fuel a magnet on the American side of the border and further fuel the drug crisis in this country that the political class is lying about and ignoring and making it a healthcare prescription doctor issue when it's an illicit heroin, fentanyl, meth, cocaine problem coming from south of the border or with in the case of Chinese fentanyl being trafficked at least in this country through the Mexican cartel distribution networks and MS-13. And this all came from the so-called teenagers. So it's not a matter of, you know, we have a, multiple issues, illegal immigration, human smuggling, sex trafficking, drug smuggling, gangs, and now abortion chain migration, abortion tourism, literally coming here to have an abortion. All of that ties together to create a demand and a booming business for the drug cartels. So I have out yesterday, we're going to link to in show notes, I have out my fourth installment in the series on the great big opioid lies, the true cause and nature of the drug crisis in America, and connecting the dots between DACA, the incentives for you know amnesty for young people, the UACs, so-called unaccompanied children coming over, the proliferation of MS-13, the insane supply of, of drugs and the overdose epidemic, and then now the human trafficking and smuggling with abortion tourism. The thing is, the thing is this, the drug cartels control the entirety of the border on the Mexican side. So when you're watching this big cartel, this uh, caravan come over, it's not a matter of, oh, someone woke up one day and decided to come to America to make a better life for themselves. I mean, even if their motivations were such, guess who gets the proceeds of the smuggling? It all goes to the cartels. So that's the thing. It's not just the fact that a bunch of drug smugglers and drug mules are coming over. Many of them are drug peddlers. Often they're not necessarily professional ones, but I linked to an article in this um, broader piece I put up, my fourth in the series, that that sometimes that is the currency they must pay in order to get smuggled over by the cartels. You have to be willing to serve as that drug mule. But even if you're not a drug mule, the proceeds that you pay to the smugglers go to the drug cartels. That is why, according to the DEA, Drug Enforcement Agency, from 2013 to 2016, coinciding directly with the surge in UACs and the promise of DACA. The poppy fields, the, you know, the heroin poppy fields in Mexico that we refused to bomb, by the way, have tripled in size. Because all the, the, the money that has gone over there has come from this massive magnet. When you turn America into a dumping ground and you have an unnatural border where you don't protect it, we don't look at the collateral damage. Everyone is so focused, even Trump sometimes, on the number of people that we kind of debate over that come over to seek a better life and make it over successfully and wind up staying here for a number of years. 
How many people are they? Maybe a few hundred thousand that are, that are worthy of staying here. But let's just say that are worthy in a vacuum. What no one wants to focus on is what does it do to the millions of Americans? Not just in terms of the fiscal cost, the schools, the crime, MS-13, obviously the hospitals, the strain on public welfare, stealing our birthright with this phony, phony birthright citizenship that's completely against the Constitution, as I note in Chapter 4 of my book, Stolen Sovereignty. But the drug crisis that everyone claims to recognize and is wringing their hands and pulling their hair out over, that is all because of this. That's what happens when you have an open border and you create such a demand for amnesty. Seeking a better life creates the, the, the perfect disguise to bring in the drugs. And that is why we had a drug. Of course, we're always going to have drugs at the point of entry and whatever. But that is why we had the epidemic level, 400, 600% increases from 2013 to 2016. That was the UAC crisis. Let me tell you something. These Central Americans coming over, that has been the worst migration we've ever had. The worst migration. I have a piece coming out today. What if I tell you that 21%, 21% of all, pretty much, you know, all um, gangs, that, gang members that have been caught, guess what? Guess what happens? They have been known, and, and, and this is, I'm, I'm getting this from, some of you have seen it from other articles. I'm reading in front of me, I just had to pull this up, the press release from ICE. Operation Matador is this, you know, administration-wide program that they started to, you know, joint task force between several law enforcement agencies to round up as many foreign national gang members as possible. So it began last May. Now, they've arrested 475 members of MS-13. 99, that's 99 of them, 21% were unaccompanied minor, minor children who came over the border 2014, 2015, around that time. So, and by the way, this is not saying that only 21% of the UACs are bad guys. There's a lot more, more I would venture to say much more than that. This is just, it happens to be 21% of those that were caught in this Operation Matador were UACs. <laughs> it, it, it's not a, a testament to how many of the UACs are gang members or similar to gang members, drug peddlers, or just all around troubled youth. And I think, you know, we, we certainly are having a national dialogue about our own troubled youth in our own country. Um, you know, that there's, there's not much you can do about that without changing the, the culture. But certainly there is a lot we can do about not letting in other countries' problems. So that era of UACs, you know, it's supposed to be compassion, refugees, you know, they're really the most problematic people around. The most problematic people around. And again, even the ones that weren't problematic, it was when they had that surge, 
that the drug cartels brought everyone in, earned the proceeds off of everyone, even the good people, so to speak. And that's when they peddled in all those drugs. All the fentanyl-laced heroin, all the distribution networks. And as I note in my piece, as I note in my piece, the growth in MS-13 correlates directly with the growth in drugs. Because according to Texas Department of Public Safety, beginning around that time, MS-13 and other gangs, 18th Street Gang, there's a couple more, they've become the distributors for the drug cartels. They used to kind of be separate entities, operate on different turf, different purposes. Now there's a symbiotic relationship between them because of the open border. You know, in a lot of this, I'd blame Trump. He spoke for a year about DACA. He wouldn't be quiet. Now he's saying, oh, it's over. It's over. Now, the problem with him saying it's over is that his leverage is what's over. You know, because he lost the budget bill. And as far as DACA is concerned, the courts are still mandating it, at least for those that already had the status, which is a lot of them, to get renewals. And he's not fighting the courts on that. He's listening to the stupid courts. So you got that court ruling, but then also you have, like I noted, the court ruling with abortion. So now we've become a chain migration magnet. Think about this. Just, Just think about this for a minute. First of all, illegal aliens are considered as if they are not on our shores. So even if you would say there's a right to an abortion, you know, for Americans, which obviously is made up, There's no right for an illegal to demand anything, even a real right, because it's as if they're not here. That's number one. And number two, obviously, you know, even legitimate foreign nationals that are here as legal permanent residents, they don't have all constitutional rights. You understand that, that a green card holder does not have a Second Amendment right nor are they allowed to donate to a political campaign, which is protected by the First Amendment, according to everyone. But somehow an illegal alien has a right to an abortion, which is not written in the Constitution. And also, just so you know, it's not just the fact that they've bastardized sovereignty, plenary power doctrine, and immigration law and sovereignty, but the courts are, if you notice, they're very quietly, radically expanding the abortion jurisprudence. Because they're now saying that anything short of driving someone to an abortion clinic is a substantial burden on their fundamental right. Meaning, for, for, forget about immigration here. What, one of the cases here, let's just say it's an American. I mean, it, logistically, it wouldn't work out because you wouldn't be detained if you're an American. But bear with me here. It, the, the administration wasn't even fighting the abortion. The administration was willing to release these Jane Doe cases, these uh, illegal alien teenagers, and by the way, some of them are over 18 and should not even be afforded or accorded this UAC uh, status because they're not minors, but they lie about their age. And again, when you're illegal, you could be illegal. You could lie, you could cheat, you could steal. Um, Identity fraud obviously is a big problem. We'll get to that in a minute. But anyway, in the case of the abortions, they were going to release them to a third party and just, you know, so it, we don't have to have our workers use the boot of government and taxpayer funding 
to violate our conscience. Nope. The court said that's not good enough. HHS basically has to drive them to the clinic. And actually, this crazy judge, so she's from the D.C. District Court, which is messed up. Tanya Kutkin, Chukkin, I don't know how to pronounce it, C-H-U-T-K-A-N, an Obama appointee, said that um, HHS has to notify all of them. And and by the way, this wasn't just uh, an individual case. It's bad enough for an individual illegal alien to get standing before a court. But guess what? Guess who else got standing? They she she certified an entire class for a class action lawsuit. So pretty much every illegal present or future who wants to come for an abortion now has standing to sue for an abortion. We, we, we've lost our minds if we're going to sit and listen to these judges and accord them such power. I mean, this is a degree of tyranny King George could have never conjured up. You know, Judge Kutkin declared, this court will not sanction any policy or practice that forces vulnerable, vulnerable young women to make such a choice, you know, between coming here and having an abortion. Uh, what? <laughs> you know, forgetting about the legality, she's, she's playing the compassion card because now compassion supplants law in a court of law. Really? Where's the compassion for the American people dropping like flies from the drug epidemic brought in by these very policies. Where's the compassion for the Americans that have been stabbed and mutilated to death by MS-13? I mean, if we're going to adjudicate political arguments and sensitivities, sensibilities, and compassion in a court, well, let's you know adjudicate all of it. But anyway, that's what the courts are doing. There's another court case. A judge in Seattle, Judge Ricardo Martinez, is now blocking the deportation of phony asylum seekers, basically saying that the government failed to notify people who come here for asylum that they have um, 24 hours, that they have uh, 12 months to file their application. He said government didn't give them sufficient notice. So therefore, they now have 90 days to give them all notice, and then the clock for 12 months starts over again. Those are hundreds of thousands of more people who now stay in this country. And, and keep in mind, you know, a lot of times we watch the chaos in Europe with millions of you know, Middle, Eastern and Middle Easterners, people from North Africa, pouring over and we're like, whew, wow, it's, it's sure glad, God bless us, that we have you know, two vast oceans in between us. Uh, that we don't have that. We think that we only have a refugee problem where we, you know, refugees we elect to take. We orderly, you know, there's an orderly process to bring them in. Whereas asylum, they just show up at your doorstep and declare asylum. No, we have that too here. Now, still the majority are from Central America, but a number of them growing thousands every year, as many as 30,000 a year, according to some estimates, come from the Middle East. They often fly from Greece to Panama or one of those countries, Costa Rica, and then they, they make the trek. And there's an entire smuggling route by the drug cartels. And this gets into narco-terrorism because Hezbollah is involved in these routes as well. So that's the mixture of drugs and terrorism and Islam and Middle Eastern immigrants. They do come here through the border. And they file for asylum. And often, the same way you have, you know, gang wars in Central America, um, where they just kind of 
fight with each other, but then they come here and claim a credible fear of persecution. The same thing, you have Sunnis and Shias coming and claiming persecution um, from one another, but they're both, they're all problematic to our security. I wrote about this a couple years ago, a Palestinian who came across the border whose father worked for Abbas and Fatah and claimed asylum because they had a credible fear of Hamas. It's unbelievable the type of garbage coming over. So these are the people we have with asylum. We have hundreds of thousands of, of pending applications. It increased tenfold since Obama took over. And now the courts have said, declared, no, amnesty. And again, they shop them around to nine circuit judges. They'll win the appeal. The Supreme Court will be slow, if ever, to take it up. As always. So when Trump says we're done with DACA, that's BS. If you're going to listen to these phony judges and not push back against them. You know, I, I would have rather he had Congress help him, but he gave up that leverage. Now he's on his own. He's got to stand up to the courts. Jeff Sessions has to write an opinion and say, we are a separate branch of government. We are going to follow 200 years of precedent on plenary power doctrine. But I'm not seeing Trump do that. Again, Trump is a day late and a dollar short when he sits and has these, you know, Twitter wars against illegal immigration, but then doesn't follow through with it. Now, it's also important to, to note here that while I think there are ways we could tighten up the law, and I think it would be worthy having this debate in Congress and running on it and having members of Congress use it to run on, I don't think we need to change the law to defend our sovereignty. I want to make something very clear. Some laws could have been written better, but no law makes America a dumping ground. Asylum, let, let's go through asylum, and then we'll go to the UACs, the unaccompanied minors that we treat like refugees. So asylum, which is for any age group, that was for people that have a credible fear of ethnic or religious persecution. Now, say what you want about Central American governments. These countries are as homogenous as they can as they come. Okay? They might be garbage places to live in general, but there's no individualized credible fear more than anyone else. They want to come and and yeah, they want to come to America. But first of all, we don't have to take them for international treaty purposes because often they pass through other safe countries for America is not the first country. So we are off the hook in terms of the treaties. In terms of our laws, it's not a credible fear. Just like in the Middle East, if you're a Sunni punk being persecuted by a Shia punk, that's not our problem. Here too. You know, if you're involved in one gang in Central America being persecuted by MS-13, well, let's go and bring them all in here. They don't qualify. Meaning, there are loopholes in our laws that if you're a bad president like Obama, you could use them to bring in people. But certainly if you're Trump and you don't want to bring them in, you have plenty of statutory authority to not accept them. Now, yes, they will sue in the courts, and the courts have already granted blanket judicial amnesty. But, I mean, if we're going to follow that, then we have no country left anyway. Now, I happen to think what Trump needs to do is follow the Australian model. Notice Australia was dumping their, um, <laughs> their rejected refugees to us, the ones they were holding in uh, New Guinea, Notice Australia stopped holding them on their shores. Now, again, I would argue that there's 200 years of court precedent saying that even if they make it to our shores, they don't have rights. 
And it's common sense. You can't, it, you only have rights if we let you in as an LPR, to a certain extent, even as a tourist, a whatever, temporary visa. But if you break into our country, you can't unilaterally assert jurisdiction. It defies any pro private property rights, the social compact, uh, self-determination. You can't have other people determining their destiny and our destiny against our will. But that's what Australia does. They house them off their shores. And that's what we should be doing here. You know, obviously, Trump hopefully will succeed and should be using every statecraft tool and dip, dip, diplomatic tool to ensure that Mexico blocks them from coming here. But if they wind up coming to our border, we need to get them out of our country. Hold them somewhere else. Hold them in, uh, I don't know, one of the territories we hold, a military base in the Pacific. That's what we should be doing. Do not bring them to our shores. And then as far as the unaccompanied children, let me explain something to you. Most laws that are kind of old, I mean, this law is not terribly old, but most laws actually aren't written that bad on immigration. So if something sounds like it's funny, then you're missing something. The law doesn't say that countries could invade us. Okay. What the law was designed of is this. If you have someone that was kidnapped, sex trafficked, they did nothing against their will, and they're just brought here, and they don't have parents, they don't have anyone to go to, they're severely trafficked, then we treat them like a refugee if they're a minor. 99.9% .9 of these illegals who came over the border do not fit that statutory description. They are not severely trafficked. They are self-trafficked. Their parents are paying. Most of them, 80% of them, wound up being housed with illegal alien relatives. They're coming here to unite. They're self-trafficking. They're paying the drug smugglers. So they're basically, we're paying for the rope to hang ourselves on. We're, <coughs> I'm sorry, we're opening up our country to people that come that themselves often are drug traffickers and gang members and bad people to pay other bad people that then empower them to grow their poppy fields and smuggle more, you know, uh, grow their dist distribution network and kill our people with drugs. I mean, this is how sick this UAC crisis is. And here's the deal. You don't need a statutory change to make this right. You know, all things equal, if we had a normal Congress and we changed the filibuster rule, we should pass this tomorrow. If nothing else, just to have a good messaging bill. But again, this is the proper interpretation of existing law. You don't need to change the law. It's Section 235A of the Wilberforce Act. It authorized resettlement program only for children who are indeed, first of all, they have to be children. A lot of them aren't. I mean, not, you know, a lot of them are, but there are some that, that lie about their age. They're over 18. But the, the main point is that they have no parent or guardian present in the country. Most of them do because that's why they're coming. The parent and the kid should be deported. And number three, they have to be victims of a severe form of human trafficking. So, the reality is that one of the first executive orders that Trump 
put out. It was called the um, Kelly Memos when Kelly was appointed DHS secretary. It was January 25th. So th- this is literally a week after the inauguration. Trump put this out. It's Section 11E, and I should probably write an article and you know, make sure the White House sees this because evidently they're unaware of their own you know, executive orders. Um, so where is this? It's Section 11E. Let me just read this for you. The secretary shall take appropriate action to require that all Department of Homeland Security personnel are properly trained on the proper application of Section 235, which we just referenced of the William Wilberforce Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act of 2008, and Section 462G2 of the Homeland Security Act of 2002 to ensure that unaccompanied alien children are properly processed, receive appropriate care and placement while in custody of DHS, and when appropriate, are safely repatriated in accordance with the law, meaning that they have to be victims of of trafficking, not not um, you know, those that actually did the trafficking. So Trump has that power to do that right away, right away. But you know, I don't know. I guess I'm gonna have to write an article because he doesn't realize that. But you know, I just want to go back to the courts for a minute. Could you imagine that states now get standing to sue for more immigration, for endless Muslim immigration? States get standing to sue to be a sanctuary city. Illegal aliens get standing for benefits, welfare, driver's licenses, now abortions, you name it. But red states like Tennessee can't get standing to sue when the government shoves in refugees against their will. Unbelievable. So this just happened recently. Tennessee was try- is one of the states that opted out of the resettlement program. But what the government's been doing is even those that don't participate in the program, they have the private resettlement organizations act like the state and just unilaterally resettle them. But then here's the problem. There's one thing you could say, okay, look, ultimately the feds have control, you know, even when it's bad policy, but you know, what could you do without changing the law? Now, there are two bills. One from Goodlatte would allow states to just fully reject. Um, another one from uh, Scott Perry, I've promoted that many times, would require affirmative, an affirmative vote from the state legislature and the governor. I believe it's both. I have to double check in order to resettle. So the default is you can't resettle in a state unless the state takes an affirmative vote on it. And that that would be wildly popular. Of course, Republicans won't bring up any of those bills, won't even give them a markup in committee, not even a hearing, because they just won't. But even under current law, you know, it's interesting. When it comes to sanctuary cities, the, the blue states assert the commande- anti-commandeering doctrine, that the spending clause of the 10th Amendment prevents the federal government from placing an unfunded liability on the states. Now, here's the thing. The states are the ones asking for grant money. The states don't have a right to grant funding. Uh, the government could say, look, if you violate federal law, basic law that, you know, it's, it's the necessary and proper clause of the Constitution. It's, it's the only means of, 
effectuating their immigration powers at a federal level and protecting national sovereignty. Because again, there's no federal territory and state territory. The, the, fed, the federal union is comprised of 50 states. That's where the illegals are. If every state is going to hide the ball and say, you can't get us, you 10th Amendment, well, then there's no way of deporting anyone. There's no way of enforcing national sovereignty. That's actually the one proper um, usage of the necessary and proper clause. But it's not an unfunded liability. It's just don't be a fugitive. We're not asking anything. Just hold them for 48 hours so you can get them. It's not some expensive program. Whereas when it comes to refugee resettlement, these are very, very poor individuals that are all going to be on welfare. Strain the schools, the bilingual education, the social problems you have, the hospitals, it's, the welfare programs. It's unbelievable. That's an unfunded liability on the states. No, they can't get standing. Um, you know, and, 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 and the judge threw it out there, but you know, then there's also just the other problem that when it comes to, um, refugee resettlement, so the the section 412 of the INA, this is eight U S code 1522. If you want to look it up, the state is supposed to have input at every stage in the process, but, but the refugee resettlement groups basically just just do everything against their will. I mean, can you imagine that? Talk about stolen sovereignty, disenfranchisement of the American people, social transformation without representation. When you could have privately, private organizations that, I was about to say privately funded, I wish, they're taxpayer-funded private resettlement contractor parasitic groups that have the, the ultimate conflict of interest that they're going to lobby for more and more and more and more refugees, no matter what, no matter the security, cultural, fiscal concerns, because they have a personal stake in raising their $300,000, $400,000 executive salaries based on the number of immigrants they resettle, and they do it against their will. The word state is mentioned in that statute 41 times. So they have a lot of input. So first, the statute dictates that local voluntary agencies – Activities should be conducted in close cooperation and advanced consultation with state and local governments. So you have to have advanced consultation. Yet they never do that or rarely do that. It also states that the ORR, Office of Refugee Resettlement, must ensure that a refugee is not initially placed or resettled in an area highly impacted by the presence of refugees or comparable populations. When making this determination, you know, what's high impact, ORR is supposed to take into account, quote, the proportion of the refugees and comparable entrance in the population area. They're supposed to, get, they're supposed to take into account the availability of employment opportunities, affordable housing and public and private resources, and the likelihood of refugees placed in the area becoming self-sufficient and free from long-term dependence on public assistance. You look at small towns, you know, like Lewiston, uh, Maine, Amarillo, Texas, even places like St. Cloud, um, <laughs> oh my gosh, I was about to say St. Cloud, Somalia. <laughs> St. Cloud, Minnesota, that has become a colony of Somalia, it has highly impacted it. Oh, and by the way, finally, the statute says that it directs ORR to factor in the secondary migration of refugees to and from the area that is likely to occur. So there's one thing you say, all right, we're going to have 15 refugees in this small, you know, small to mid-sized town. All right, that, that's not highly impactful. 
But if, if those people are then going to bring in a chain migration of refugees, this is how you have a scenario where in Somalia, where in Minnesota, here I am again, in Minnesota, you have tens of thousands of Somalis in greater Minneapolis. There's been a 92% increase in crime since then. And then that's just domestic crime. You have the, the terrorism problem. Where you had about 50 of them arrested for terrorism you know, since uh, we started resettling there. America has become a dumping ground. America last. Trump doesn't have to wait to enforce the law on refugee resettlement. To enforce the law on asylum, to enforce the law on unaccompanied alien children, which aren't children. He can and must do this. Stop whining. Be a man. Enforce your own executive orders. Stand up to the courts. And oh, the next time you have um, leverage with a must-pass bill, use it! Threaten your veto! Stop with this beta complaining. Look, we'll see the way he acts in the next week or so with this caravan. But um, I'm just sick of I'm sick of him getting righteous the minute after he screws us. It's like you know, a player striking out on the field every at bat, but then trash talking the opposing team. At, you know, when when the game's over, in the in the media from the bleachers. I want you to make the plays when the ball is actually in play. Not when the other side has already won. When the outcome is no longer in contention. We needed Trump talking about this the last month in the lead up to the budget bill. Not now. But nonetheless, like I'm saying, even now there are things he can do to enforce the current interpretation of the law, have Jeff Sessions write an opinion Make it very clear. Make a televised address from from the Oval Office. Talk about the drugs, the sex trafficking, the strain on our communities, the crime. Give a full speech on this. And then that will give you the political will to fight back against the courts. But until he does that, everything else is just talk. Anyway, look out for more happening here. Um, we're going to have a lot more on the immigration issue at Conservative Review. As always, get your subscription to CRTV if you don't already have it. Mark Levin is a much watch. Also, make sure to watch Levin's TV show on Fox News sun- Sunday night, every, 10 o- every Sunday night at 10 p.m. God willing, I will be his guest in two weeks from now. So not next Sunday, but the Sunday after that. This past Sunday at Ed Mison. I'm not sure who he's having on next week. Um, but I will be on likely with another guest. I'm not sure who that guest is yet, but make sure to tune in because we are fighting a war here. You know, whatever you think of Laura Ingram, if you're a fan, if you don't like her or anything in between, we have a scenario now where basically the left doesn't only control the courts, the bureaucracies, media, academia, foundations, entertainment, all the cultural institutions, They now control big business. So the thing is, you can never be too cruel from a liberal vantage point, but you could be too cruel, so to speak, from a conservative vantage point. You can never be too pro-criminal, pro-cop killer, um, pro-open borders, which is killing our country with drugs and crime. 
pro-Islamic terrorists, pro-Hamas, pro-Muslim Brotherhood, pro-homosexual agenda. It's only the other way you could get boycotted. I, w- I would like to live in a society where we keep business out of <clears throat> politics, but that ship has sailed. The other side has done this. We have to do it back to them. We have to boycott them and rally around our advertisers. So just giving you a heads up, I will have new advertisers on this show in the coming weeks, and I'm, I'm really going to need you to rally behind them because that is how we fight back. There's a reason. You guys know this. There's a reason why on Fox News, you know, most people toe a certain line. It all gets back to money. And there's a reason why we have spoken the truth here. I am not tied to anyone. There's no sacred cows. You know, even without advertisers, thank God, you know, I'm independent. But, you know, it definitely helps to have advertisers on the show as well. So... You know, we'll we'll be highlighting them in the coming weeks, some useful products and services uh, to check out. And and just keep in mind, anyone willing to advertise on a show like this, it tells you a lot about their values. Willing to be that bold and associate themselves with a name like myself. So that is a very big issue, this boycott war. And, you know, again, you know, vote with your with your viewership as well as the advertisers, I mean, it's important that Mark Levin show gets high ratings because right now Levin is kind of the lowest rung on Fox's lineup. It's 10 10 p.m. Sunday night. You know, what if that turned into, you know, 7 p.m. Sunday night? What if that eventually turned into a weeknight? So make sure you tune in to his show as well. Um, We're going to continue with our candidate series, hopefully, uh, let me know your feedback, what questions you want to ask, what type of candidates you want on. I'm just warning you that, you know, don't don't mix and match the different candidates we have on. Each one's a different story. Some of them are personal friends. Some of them I'm endorsing. Some of them I know or have known for a while. Others I often don't speak to until I have them on. You know, they reach out to me. They seem like they're challenging the establishment. But I don't know if, you know, they're everything's on the up and up. And that's what I told you. I I warned you that I do not have the ability and the time to vet every candidate to to the level that I could endorse them and then, you know, have it blow up in my face. But on the other hand, I didn't want to be a coward and say, well, I'm too scared to endorse, so I'm just going to wash my hands of this. No, I'm going to, you know, anyone that seems like they're challenging the establishment, I'm going to try to give them the platform so you guys could decide, hear from them, research further. If the guy kind of sounds a little funny, inarticulate, doesn't know the issues well, you'll pick up on that. You know, you'll pick up on that well. I'm not going to necessarily challenge them, be rude to them on air, but I, you guys are very smart. You'll pick up on on that. You'll be able to see which candidates have the fire in the belly, which ones don't, which ones have an awareness of the issues, which ones don't, which ones have a you know legitimate campaign, and which ones might be good on the issues, their heart's in the right place, but they just don't don't have it. So, uh you know, I just wanted to put that out there. Not every candidate I have on is someone I fully back or have even met before and could even vet before they're on the show. So I will be having, you know, I, I, I do I I do have a commitment to try to have people on that reach out. Um, you know, unless I totally see there's just no campaign whatsoever to speak of, I'm not gonna waste your time. But just a heads up, they're not all gonna be like Chip Roy, Jaron Jackson, um, 
you know, some of the guys I've endorsed in, in, in the past that I have more confidence in just have gotten to know them better, uh, know their mass, you know, their, their ability to master the issues. So watch out for our meet the candidate series. We're going to continue as always email me on your healthcare ideas. I'm collecting more healthcare ideas. Um, a lot of specialists and doctors have reached out to me wanting to create this task force to try to promote healthcare freedom in this country. If you're interested in that, email me dharwitz at crtv.com or uh, send send me a note on Twitter at rmconservative. I do have a Facebook account, but I'm still in the Stone Ages. I hate Facebook. I never use it. So don't try to contact me there. I'm pretty unlikely. It's pretty unlikely that I'm going to see it. So those are just some some notes here. Also, um, we're going to be talking about some dirty campaigning in Florida, some liberals uh, lying about Ron DeSantis's record to promote their pro-amnesty, pro-ag uh, subsidy candidate, Adam Putnam. Watch out for that as well. Until next time, thank you all for listening. God bless. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. 